Welcome to Ask the Investigator, brought to you by the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology. The JDD podcast illuminates timely scientific content through thoughtful discussion with top dermatology authors. Subscribe to the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology at jddonline.com to browse the current issue and evidence-based peer-reviewed archives. Welcome back to the latest episode of the JDD Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Friedman, Professor and Chair of Dermatology at the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Today, we have a repeat offender, Dr. Amy Paller. Dr. Paller is Chair of the Department of Dermatology, Director of the Skin Biology and Diseases Resource-Based Center, and the Walter J. Hamlin Professor of Dermatology at Northwestern. While best known for her pediatric dermatology prowess, Dr. Paller has vast expertise in a wide array of areas from genetic and immune-mediated inflammatory diseases in children to what is near and dear to my heart, nanotechnology. Welcome back, Dr. Paller. Thank you, Adam. So atopic dermatitis is in the development spotlight with two oral agents, two injectables, and now four classes of topicals available to us. And, and a good number of these came out all at once in, in a matter of months, which is so unusual uh, in, in drug development and dermatology especially. With that in mind, how has your approach to evaluating the patient, and part two of that is how you select which drug for which kind of patient type or you know disease phenotype, how has that evolved in, I mean, in the last matter of months, given all the changes we've been seeing? Now, we are very lucky. We're finally seeing new medications coming out, both topical and systemic. For children, and that's the group that, of course, I take care of, uh, we're just starting to see these. We've been blessed to have dupilumab, and now down to six months of age. That's going to be huge in, in my practice. Uh, we have now the topical ruxolitinib, which has come out, and, and that's for 12 and above. Uh, and then, of course, we have the upadacitinib, which is also available now for 12 and above. We're looking forward to having uh, the, the tralecidumab, which is now uh, approved for adults, come into the adolescent range next. And similarly, abracitinib now approved for adults coming into the adolescent range. So even for those for whom I don't have that many choices yet, I'm seeing things on the horizon, and I do have to think about that. It's really been been great to have something like dupilumab because I think the most important thing in a pediatric practice is safety, and that medication has proven to be quite safe. Sure, we can get some conjunctivitis, but it's treatable, and I love the fact that we don't have to do lab testing for children. So this has really impacted my treatment ability because I used to hesitate so much. Should I put this child on cyclosporin? Well, what about methotrexate? It'll take so much longer. It might not work. And now it's it's a no-brainer. Other than the fact that I have to teach parents how to give injections, and that can be a struggle, uh, it, there's no question that that for me this is first-line therapy just because of its its safety and and convenience. Uh, of course. Giving shots to these young children is is a problem, and um, we we try to treat treat distraction techniques uh, and help parents to get past that incredibly difficult 
concept of hurting the child with a shot, which of course we as parents all shudder to think about as well. With with respect to the the upadacitinib for systemic, I, I think that is appropriately labeled as a second line treatment after one has tried the injectable, which at this point for uh, all pediatric patients is just the dupilumab. But I think there definitely will be a place. I've certainly had patients who don't respond or don't respond as well as I'd like to the dupilumab. Perhaps they'd respond better if I could give it more frequently or give a higher dose, but we're all very limited by access. So those will be patients that I will try to transition to the apatacitinib or the abacitinib when it comes out. Uh, thinking about it carefully for my patients, for example, with alopecia areata or vitiligo, although there's some data out there suggesting that patients who have atopy and alopecia areata may actually respond quite well to dupilumab. So these are all learning opportunities for us for the future. Having topical rixolitinib, of course, is, is great. I'm looking forward to when I can get it more universally for my patients, uh, including those with public assistance. But at the same time, uh, it's it really seems to be quite safe when limited to 20% of the body or under, which is a large proportion of, of my patient population. And so far feels pretty good to patients. I'm not getting as much of the burning stinging as uh, we can sometimes see with the topical calcineurin inhibitors uh, and also the uh, chrysoboral, the phosphodiesterase boron inhibition. You know, all, all great points. And, and I want to touch upon a couple of them. So first you mentioned access, which, uh, you know, we live in a, in a world where the best medication is often the one you can actually get to the patient, not the one you actually want for the patient. Uh, mm -hmm. and I think we've had to come up with some, you know, tricks and, uh, kind of preventative strategies, uh, to really combat the hurdles put before us by payers. Uh, for me personally, it's been document, 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 what have the patient failed, uh, how severe is their disease? Uh, but even then that doesn't work. Have you, especially in your pediatric population, have you come up with any tricks of the trade to accelerate the process to get drug in patients' hands, you know, whether it be dupilumab, whether it be topical rucks? Uh, have you ha found any tricks that make it easier to get that drug in the patient's hands to, of course, get them feeling better? Yeah, I think it's really tough. Uh, it's such a struggle for us sometimes. Uh, we've been fortunate in Illinois that it's not been that hard to get the dupilumab um, at least more recently. But we do know the tricks, for example, there's a requirement here that they have to have tried tacrolimus. And many patients come in and, and hadn't tried a topical calcineurin inhibitor. And so even though I'll look at somebody and I'll know that tacrolimus is not going to turn this around, I just go ahead and, and order it because in the meantime, I can start the process to try to get dupilumab and at least get a report from the patient that it's not working uh, and then hopefully be able to get the dupilumab. So just little tricks like that, trying to get an understanding of what will be required to expedite. Uh, and sometimes I'll even talk to somebody before I see them and say, let me order this for you uh, so that we can, we can move forward. I, I think that, um, for some of these drugs, we really do have to go to bat with insurance and, and letters aren't enough. And I have engaged families to really talk at the same time as, as I'm on a peer-to-peer -peer type of call about the impact. Because 
I can say, yes, this patient has the severity that's needed or hasn't responded to this or that, but there's nothing like the impassioned plea of the parent or the child, either in writing the letter of necessity or in being right there on a peer-to-peer -peer call that helps to turn that around and allow the possibility to try something. That's great. I actually haven't thought about you know, using the patient or the family. I've, I've occasionally had patients take photos of themselves that include in my letter, but that's a oh, great yes. idea because, you know, you, there's no way, no matter how well we know this disease, we don't know it as well as, as, as the person who is suffering with it. So that, that's a And great I absolutely tip. document, like you said, and, and take photos and share those, but sometimes it takes more. Yep, absolutely. You know, the thing you brought up was the talk. And I don't mean birds and bees, but rather to talk about using something systemic to a patient or the patient's family members when that has never been in their mindset. I mean, psoriasis nowadays, yeah, we get it. There are, ton there are too many biologics, one could argue. But with atopic derm, there's still plenty of patients who think that you treat this with a cream and the idea of something systemic is so foreign. And especially when you're talking about a kid and having to inject, what are some tricks you've come up with in terms of the storytelling or the conversation you have with the parents and the child, getting them on board for using, whether it be an injectable or an oral medication that may require blood monitoring? Yeah, well, I think part of it is just my increased comfort, which when we have a, a relationship of trust goes a long way. Because I remember in the past trying to even wrestle with myself about whether it was time <laughs> and or, or struggling with the parent because I thought it was time, especially when I talked about the side effects and the need for blood monitoring. So when, when I raise uh, the question, let's say, of dupilumab, I will say we have a medicine right now that really seems to be quite effective and it's incredibly safe. And I get that safety out there front and center. Uh, I can talk about this does require you to be giving a shot every four weeks, or it might say every two weeks. Uh, but because it's so safe, there's no blood draws. There's This is the only thing you have to do. And we can talk you through how to do that in such a way that at least we can try to minimize the discomfort and the struggle. How quickly do you see your, your new, whether it be biologic or systemic, agent patients back. So that, that comes up a lot in terms of, you know, like getting them back in quickly just to improve adherence, let alone expectations for, for efficacy. Well, my clinics are pretty full. But I actually uh, bring people back at two months. And, and I do that because I can usually have a pretty good idea by then of how they're doing and whether they're going to do well. Uh, if they, don't really, let, let's talk about with dupilumab. If they don't really have much improvement by two months, they're probably not going to be great and where I want them to be at four months. But I am a big believer in interim checks. And in fact, this is, I think, a huge need in our specialty to figure out how we can do more than just acutely guide patients, but have some kind of a system that's not too time consuming. I am the type of doctor who gives my email out and I tell my patients, I want to hear from you in two weeks, or I want to hear from you in four weeks. I'm not going to see you for two months, but I want to hear from you. And I, I sometimes will have people I'm very worried about come back in, in four weeks, but I will always have an interim check. And, and that goes actually beyond 
a systemic medication as well. If I if I want to see if we're going to have to take the next step, I may have someone just let me know, even with a topical, in two weeks because I'm concerned about them. And I may go a different direction or I might give different advice for uh, either continuing along rather than the acute or if they're not doing well. So um, I I don't just count on appointments in, in my practice. Yeah. And I think certainly EMRs can also assist with that, depending on what system you have uh, yeah. and the ease of... Yep. Oh, my chart has, has been, I think, a godsend for us in terms of patients being able to reach us very easily. And, and it shows a level of investment. It also, I think, improves adherence. It's like the person who brushes their teeth right before the dentist appointment, they know they're sending you a message in two weeks. It can probably improve adherence. I know Steve Feldman's listening somewhere about adherence and compliance. Um, it's smiling that we're talking about this. But, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> two weeks before, two weeks after, you got that window. Um, and I And I do take that to heart in telling people to let me know what's happening. And you know, the other thing about that that I think is so nice is that it tells them I'm here for you. I care. Please make sure to let me know how, how everything's going. Well, well said. Well, thank you so much for your time, your expertise and, and everything you do and invest in our specialty to, to help us be better at taking care of our patients. And of course, taking care of your patients as well. You've been listening to JDD Podcast, Ask the Investigator, the number one podcast for dermatology pearls. Our host is Dr. Adam Friedman. The podcast is produced and edited by Emily Lynch-Fries. Our theme music is designed for life by Young Presidents. New episodes are available the first Friday of every month. Check us out at jddonline.com podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to talk to us about this or any other episode, email us at info at jddonline.com. Subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, and don't forget to catch our next episode. Thanks for listening.